Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. chapter 12 now is where we are verse 1 let me read you just a few verses and it'll help us lean in it is about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them he had James the brother of John put to death with the sword and when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews he proceeded to seize Peter also This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. This is going to be some good stuff tonight. Are you ready? So, Lord, what we're asking for tonight is just open hearts. We need to be able to hear you clearly. We need to be able to take this text that to us, some of us could have even just heard that right there and we have no idea what to do with it. We have no idea why that could be important for our lives. We have no idea how that applies. And the objective tonight is to take this text and now bring it to life for us here in the modern day. For us to in some sense step back into history, the origin of the church, and to sense, Lord, the dangerous spirit of what you were doing with the apostles in the church so that we could live that way in 2023. The dilemma today is that we have a world that is so bent on everything towards the future that we are leaving behind all the great things that you've done throughout history. And so I ask, Lord, it doesn't have to be somebody in the room that's a history buff to catch this. It has to be somebody that has an open heart to receive from your spirit tonight. And I ask that as your word is open, as your word goes forth, and as your spirit is alive in this place, if hearts would be open tonight, if people would just give this a chance to hear your word tonight, I know that life can spring forth in a fresh way for people. I know that something can be unlocked in the minds of people tonight. Would you do it tonight, Jesus? Would you speak to us? Would you change us? Would you show us, Lord, where where we're a little broken or a little crooked or a little bit out of sorts, a little bit off track? Would you show us tonight so that we can be more like you? We love you and we love your word. Thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you that we get to talk about it this year. And we get to talk about it in the year 2023. It's good to be alive this year. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone says amen. Are we alive? Volume 5, issue 3. Here we go. Why don't you like shake three people, shake them a little bit, make sure they're awake, make sure they're good. We're going to lean in. Man. so much happening right there in just four verses it's really uh it's really actually kind of intense if we just stop and take it in for a second this is a real life movie that is acts chapter 12 and the opening scene of this film is a heartbreaking scene for the church it's heartbreaking Because James, son of Zebedee, who is brother to John, give you some perspective here, John is the one we see in Acts chapter 3 where it says that Peter and John come across this lame beggar. Acts chapter 4, we see them present as well. This is who we're talking about. The brother John, little brother to James. Now, James is not the first Christian that is killed here of the the church that Jesus had set up. The first one to die is in Acts chapter 7, five chapters earlier. He's the first, one of the first deacons of the church. His name is Stephen, and he's stoned to death. So he's not the first killed, but he is the first apostle who is martyred for the faith, meaning Jesus had set up these men in the very beginning that would follow him, that would learn exactly who he is, how he did things, so that when he ascended into heaven, he would set up these men to continue to lead the church. 
James is one of the 12 at this point that are leading the church. And he is now the first one to be martyred, which means murdered, essentially, killed. But a martyr is somebody who's killed for a very specific reason. He's killed for following Jesus, the first one. This is who we're talking about. This is the James that I'm trying to kind of bring into perspective and, and, and have us feel something with it. I don't know if you're like me, but I many times struggle with empathy. So I can read something like this, and I can just go right past what it might feel like to be in the shoes of the early church, what it might feel like to have lost somebody like the Apostle James. See, because this was, this was shocking for the church. They knew about Stephen, but it was almost like the dangerous dozen, the 12, the ones that followed Jesus. It was almost as if they were untouchable. Where they went, miracles followed. When they spoke, people were healed. These dudes are rock stars. This is how the church sees them. And they're seeing now that God is no respecter of persons. They're seeing now that we're all just equal at the cross, and they're recognizing, oh, no, not James. Not like that. that John's brother, James, I mean, they like thick as thieves. They've been always doing ministry together, not James. You see, it shook the church, but it was more than that. Can you imagine being the little bro? Can you imagine being John? They were inseparable. If you go to the beginning of their story, it says that James and John are there fishing with their father Zebedee. And Jesus shows up to that moment where they were fishermen, and quickly they went from being fishermen to Jesus said, you're no longer going to fish as men, but you're going to fish for men. I'm going to teach you that this is a lot bigger than what's going down in the water, a lot bigger than a big catch that can make you some money. I'm going to teach you how to catch people for the kingdom. So Jesus comes upon James and John, and he goes, listen, come follow me. And they did. They dropped it all, and they followed it doesn't say James and then randomly this other dude. It was always James and John. James and John. They followed Jesus as James and John. They took off and left everything as James and John. Can you, remember, can you imagine the conversation with their father Zebedee? Hey, so, Dad, I know, like, we all been fishing together for a while, but Jesus, I really believe he's the Messiah. I really believe the one that was prophesied out about, that's him. Like, he's the one we've been waiting on, Dad. Like, i got to leave everything. And they're together saying, Dad, basically, I'm sorry, but you're on your own now running this business. Because we're about to be in a new business with Jesus right now. This is James and John. I, I can't imagine what maybe John might have felt. Recognizing that he's going to do the rest of his ministry all by himself without his bro that he had. Yeah, he's got, he's got Peter and he's got the rest of the crew, but he don't got his bro anymore. Even when you read the text, any monumental moment that is recorded in the Gospels, they're still inseparable in those moments. There was this moment called the Transfiguration, where literally from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah show up on this mountain with Jesus, who was there, always described in this order with these three, Peter, James, and John. You see this time and time again. There was the 12, but then Jesus had three that he would take a little further with him. Peter, James, and John. In the Garden of Gethsemane before he was betrayed, before the soldiers came and before he would go to the cross, Jesus is in there praying. He takes the 12 and he leaves nine of them here, and then he takes three of them. Who? Peter, James, and John a little further with him to pray. That's why Peter could be so close to cut the dude's ear off in the garden, because why? He was right there in the proximity, always close with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. This is the James that I'm referring to. This, I'm trying to help you understand a little bit the gravity of the situation. Now, if you've lost somebody, it's not difficult for you, but if you haven't in the room and you haven't really lost somebody super close to you, such as me, I've never gone through that, it many times is difficult to really understand the text and empathize with what's happening right here. But James just left behind the church. James just left behind all of his family. James just went home to be with Jesus. This is who I'm talking about right now. And Luke records here in the next verse that Herod has a lot of thoughts about this. Like Herod ain't doing this randomly. He's very strategically in his efforts now. Why would he take James's life 
and what's going to happen after this. It says, next verse, verse 3, that when he saw, meaning Herod the king here, when he saw that this, killing James, he's saying, met with approval among the Jews, he then, it says, proceeded to seize Peter also. He's like, okay, this went really well when I took James, killed him. I'm now going to take Peter. And I promise you, he was not planning on stopping there. I have to drop an extension here on, on Acts chapter 12 to show you what happens in the grand scheme. You should read ahead the end of Acts 12 because God made sure that Herod couldn't follow through with his plans. But he, his plans were very simply this. I'm going to start picking off apostle by apostle by apostle, and I'm going to try to shut this church down. That was Herod's plan. And so he wants to go through every single one, picking them off one by one. But it wasn't just because he was this vindictive, vicious, crazy, psycho lunatic. Yes, he was. But why? And this is now where we lean in. How does this relate to us? And this is why it hurts reading the Bible, because we want to see ourselves in the good guy, not in the bad guy. But the reality of reading Scripture is the majority of what we, we, we read outside of some of the prophets in the Bible, and even then, issues, but most definitely Jesus, we rarely can see ourselves in the good guy. We see ourselves in the bad guy because the bad guy, quote-unquote, is the one who's fallen short and is in need of a Savior. That's why Jesus came in the first place, because we're not the good guy. We are the one who has fallen short, and we are in need of saving. But when you follow the text here, it's interesting the way that this is worded, worded here in the NIV. It says that this met with approval among the Jews. If you follow other translations, very simply it says, it pleased the Jews. Why did Herod do it? Very simply. He was a little boy trapped in a man's body. Herod was a scared, insecure people pleaser. Here's the text. It pleased the Jews. And when he found out that it pleased them, that it could then from there stroke his own ego, it could then from there fuel him with all the things he needed now to feel on top, he was just going to pick them off one by one by one. It pleased the Jews. You know why people pleasing is such a problem? I will not ask for hands because I am not ready for every single hand in this room to go up right now. Because I know there's a lot of people pleasers in the room. Very simply, let's just break it down, make it simple, quick, easy. Let's, let's just rip the duct tape off right now. Ready? You know why people pleasing is a problem? Because it's not God pleasing. Were you waiting for some, like, amazing scientific, psychological, neurological answer? Or are you looking for me to like break down, well, uh, in the atoms of our brain? People-pleasing is a problem because it's not God-pleasing. The direction of where and who we're trying to please is not God, so it's going to be a problem. I think what I want us to understand is that when you break down this idea of God-pleasing, if you could understand this, see, pleasing God is obviously so great on, on many levels, but let me relate it to people-pleasing. Pleasing God has the ability to please people. Do you understand that? When you are making your life about pleasing God, it will please many people. But it will also displease many people. And that's where we get caught up. Pleasing God can please many people. But if it doesn't, it's okay because you already pleased the only person you needed to. Let's flip it. Pleasing people can also please God. It could. You understand that truly, if I seek to, to love my wife and to please her, that can please God. But there also are people that if I try to please, there is the reality that also won't please God. And so the problem here is that if you please people and it doesn't please God, you haven't covered the right ground. Because if you don't start by pleasing God and you aim to please people and you never end up pleasing God, 
you are now in the same conundrum that Herod finds himself. See, what God is looking for is he's looking for people that will be so sacrificially set up, set apart, aimed at pleasing him. That make it their sole objective to please who he is and to live by his standards to make it all about him. I think the thing that we need to understand about many people in the room that are people pleasers is that many times when people pleasers are living to please other people, they're simultaneously living with this disgusting feeling of fear inside of them. Because they're fearful that if I do not please people, if at any point I stop pleasing people, now your, your mind is already racking your brain of why, but let me just get inside your head for a second. It always freaks people out, like, how did you know I was thinking that? Be because we're all people, and we've all fallen short, and the Bible shows us these images of these people so we can learn from them so that we can become more like Jesus and, and not like Herod. But very simply, some of you, you're struggling with this fear inside of you that if I stop pleasing these people, then they're going to abandon me. And if I don't live my life to please these people, they're not going to love me anymore. They're going to stop loving me. They're not going to be there. They're not going to love me. They're not going to tell me they love me. They're not going to show me they love me. They're not going to want to care for me anymore. If I stop pleasing them, oh, it's even worse. I'm going to disappoint them. And you can't live with that inside of you that you disappointed somebody. Because you are living so strictly and strongly off of people's approval that you can't help but have to be approved with them rather than being, you know what, I'm actually okay. If I disappoint you but don't disappoint God, that's actually okay with me. But see, you've not found yourself in that situation yet. You found yourself continually wanting to please others, and you are fearful that if I disappoint them, then it could even be worse. And, and some of it, listen, I know some of you have gone through things with family members, different things, where this has been built up in you and placed on you, and it wasn't your doing. It might not have been your doing, but you now have to do something with it. You might have been taught all the wrong ways, but you need to lean to the word and learn all of God's ways now. Because some of you live to please people in such a way that all that you think about is the negative consequences that will come with something if you don't please somebody properly. Rather than the positive and the beautiful things that could come if you aim to please God. And so you constantly walk around living with this weight on you. And I want to show you there's a big difference because Jesus teaches us, and we live this out in such a way here that we literally build teams around this concept, that there's a big difference between pleasing people and serving people. And I think we misplace this a little bit. Because pleasing people is built on this idea of many times people have low self-esteem, therefore they're trying to please people. They have a fear of rejection, so they're trying to please people. They have this, this ungodly, deep appetite for validation, so they're trying to please people. But see, when we serve, it is exemplifying the character of Jesus. And so we don't do it from the same place. Because Jesus said that the Son of Man, referring to himself, he said, did not come to be served, but to serve. So see, we can still sacrifice and go out of our way for people, but we don't do it from a place of low self-esteem. We do it from a place that we feel self-worth. Why? Because we know who we are. Because we know who Jesus is. And we can go, I serve because Jesus served. Why? Because I'm like Jesus. And I'm an image of God. And I've been bought with the blood of Jesus. And I've been forgiven because of Jesus. And I have a plan. God has a plan for my life, and I have a purpose because of Jesus. And we're no longer worried about this, this fear of rejection, but we can feel the approval of God because we don't do things just simply for man's approval. There's a difference between being approved by God and man, as Scripture says, and living for man's approval. I'll tell you, when you are living in such a way that God has approved you, the people that need to, man, as Scripture says, or humans, it's going to be leaders, people that are God-fearing, spirit-filled people, they're going to approve your life too. So you don't have to actually seek to aim to please even these people. You don't have to seek to please your pastors. Because if you please God, 
it will naturally please us. And if you don't please us, but truly in your heart of hearts you're pleasing God, then it doesn't matter in the end because you stand before God as your judge, not us. Now, as I have worked with some of my leaders long enough, at some point they were students, I've come to find out over time that very few times when we're led of the Spirit, we're wrong. And I tell you that not as a fear tactic. I tell you that as we are here to reinforce you pleasing God. So at times, when we're trying to correct things in your life, point you to Scripture, point you to the ways of God, it's not to please us. It's to help you live a life that pleases God. But there's something about when you get this spirit of a servant inside of you that I want to serve like Jesus. I want to love like Jesus. I want to sacrifice like Jesus. You do it from a place of fullness. You do it because I have worth and value according to Jesus. He has validated who I am. He did it with blood on the cross. I'm no longer going to live for everyone's approval because every time I keep living for people's approval, I keep dying by their rejection. So I'm going to live by God's approval for my life so I'm not worried about the world's rejection. That's where serving comes from. That's where a life laid down to honor Jesus, where that comes from. Not aiming to please people or even worse, many times please ourselves, but aiming to lay all of that down at the feet of Jesus to please him. That's what a servant looks like. This is the issue we're dealing with, the attitude of Herod, that if you get to the end of Acts chapter 12, and I'm going to shred this in extension and pull it apart, but you should go read it. God deals very harshly with people that are living to please man and not God. Jump ahead, read it. It's good stuff. The Bible is like rated R, by the way. Let me get into it. Next verse, verse 4. Man, I could just preach verse 3 all night. I feel that in me, but I got like 10 pages left. No, just joking. Verse 4. After arresting him, he put him in prison. This is Peter. Handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Now, I want you to understand this. Four squads of full, four soldiers, we can do the math here. Four times four is 16 soldiers. I want you to recognize this, that Herod had set up 16 soldiers for one man. You want to know why? Because Herod had heard and seen all the stories of what one man was capable of. He couldn't recognize and understand. He, since he was a power-hungry person, he just thought this is how Peter was, and Peter was full of power. He didn't recognize that he was full of the Holy Spirit, which now conveyed that power. It wasn't Peter in and of himself. It was the name above every name, and it was the Spirit of the living God that gets on that name that brings that kind of power. So he's like, I'm going to send 16 dudes to watch one dude. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. You know, see, if Herod, let's just size up what's about to happen. If he just killed James, then what do you think he wants to do with Peter? Do you think that he placed Peter in prison so he could have a timeout? He's like, hey, let's cool him off. He's hot right now for the things of God. Let's just, let's, you know, it's like in the NBA when, when they're shooting and stuff. Finally, when they're so hot, they'll step like way back and they'll just fire. It's called heat check. We're just going to see how hot. You think he was just like, well, let's just cool him off. He's a little hot for the things that God, or, or if he just killed James, was there another plan that Herod had for Peter? I think the plan, I mean, when we really break it down, is simple. The plan for Peter was just like James. It was to publicly execute him.
The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When he had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. That's some crazy stuff. That's some crazy stuff. How did this just happen? How did Peter just prison break? I know some of you would say it was the Harry Potter invisibility cloak that he was wearing. But it wasn't. I know we all want that to be so true. For some reason, we'll believe in a Harry Potter invisibility cloak, but we won't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't. It was an angel. An angel literally shows up in the prison. He actually thinks it's a vision. He can't even believe it actually is happening. Himself... He's walking through it, and he himself doesn't even believe this is real. But still, we haven't answered the question. We said an angel showed up. An angel struck him, woke him up, literally walked him out without anybody even noticing. Sixteen soldiers in a trance, not even realizing what's just, just not even seeing it. But we still even right there haven't answered the question. Why did the angel show up? Was it just random, like Peter is in prison again, bro's struggling again, it's a little bell he dings, you rang, the angel shows up? How did he get there? Why did he get there? How did he know about it? I forgot to read a really important verse. I just, I realize now I just skipped it over. Like, without this verse, the whole message doesn't even make sense. Verse 5. See, you take in verse 5, and it says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church, man, those three words, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Book of Acts is full of big butts like this. Peter was in prison, but the church, I I told you, you got to go back, watch the sermon. I think it's called same level, same grace. God has a big butt. There's no butt bigger than God's. And you need to remember that. I'm telling you. You read scripture, and what happens a lot of times is we get caught up in the moment. And we go, oh, Peter's in prison. But the church. But God. Big butt father God. But the church was earnestly. You know what that means? I mean, it means they are getting it. They're praying. They're all gathering together night after night after night. And it wasn't random prayers. People pray these random prayers. And, uh, and I just pray for, like, world peace and, you know, everybody to love each other. And uh, I pray just for everyone and just a touch, just something. Yeah. No, they were getting on their knees They're getting in the presence. They're putting a petition before the Lord like, God, if you don't do something, we just lost James, and we ain't losing Peter too. And God, just to remind you, I know you know, but we're going to make it abundantly clear. They prayed specific prayers. We need you to get Peter out of this prison because we can't get in, but we believe you can get him out. 
In the Greek here, when it, in this verse, it breaks it down. And very simply, two words that you need to remember is that they regularly and repeatedly prayed. Meaning, they kept regularly showing up together, but they repeatedly prayed about the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Night after night, day after day. This reminds me of, uh, of something that ha had happened. It wasn't even that long ago. It was with a man, a man by the name of Terry Waite. It was in 1987. And it happened between the years of 1987 to 1991. Terry is a humanitarian. He's an author. He's an Anglican Christian. Jesus is Lord to him. That's simple. But you need to know that because the Anglican church kind of got going on some things that I want to tell you about. See, Terry, as a humanitarian, he was a part of an effort with the Anglican church to go to Beirut, Lebanon. And he was in the midst of a negotiation on January 20th, 1987. He was with them on a negotiation with Islamic Jihad to release 10 Western hostages, many of which were Americans. So as he's in the midst of these negotiations, these Muslim radicals, they completely flip the deal, change their mind, cancel the order, and they end up kidnapping him instead. He, as he breaks it down in his mind, as he's thrown into solitary confinement and he's, as he's in this prison now in Lebanon, he thinks this is probably going to be some sort of 24-hour exchange. Like by the morning, this will get figured out. The president is going to make a phone call, that, or the it'd be UK is going to make a phone call and, and uh, is going to get an, do an exchange. I'm going to be out of here, and then it ain't 24 hours. He, he talks about this in the interview. He's in his 80s now. And he talks about how maybe it'll be a few days, and then after a few days, maybe like a week, and then after a week, maybe some weeks and a month, and maybe three months and six months, and now a year's gone by. It's got to be now, though. It's been a year. And now it's been almost five years at this point. I mean, you ain't just in another country. I mean, you are in radical territory. And he's in chains quite literally just like Peter. At one point, his wife, somehow word got back to her and they told her, your husband's dead. And there was something in her, rather than grieving, she actually started hoping even stronger. Rather than just weeping and grieving and giving up and saying, I've, my husband's lost, I know it's been years, she started praying. But it wasn't just her, it wasn't just the family, like many, many people started praying. Finally, this, the Anglican church there, they set up a, a prayer vigil. And they lit a candle there. And it was set up at uh, Lambath, I think it's called Lambath Palace Chapel. And the archbishop came, and it was this big thing, and people prayed. But it wasn't like this one-time prayer. It wasn't like 15-minute prayer. It was now two times a day people gathered to pray. You know when they started it? January 20th, 1988. One year later, they had the prayer vigil. The day before I was born, they started praying. Now almost for four years straight, two times a day, that candle stayed lit. And as long as that candle was lit in this church, that means that the people were praying. It meant that Terry hadn't come home and we were still praying and believing he was going to come home. And when this candle goes out, that means he's home. 1,000. 763 days later. Think of all the prayers prayed in that many days. The chains were unlocked, and he came home. Why? Because there was a church that just couldn't stop praying about it. This is what happened with Peter. The 12th verse in the 12th chapter in the 12th year of We Are One. You know what it says? 
It says that when this had dawned on him, Peter, he recognizes, whoa, this, this is not a vision. I'm actually out of here. I've actually straight up just walked out of a prison. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered, and I need you to see the tense of this, and were praying. Not had prayed about it. They were praying. The candle was still lit for Peter. See, when Peter was in prison, the church was in prayer. When Peter is in chains, the church is chaining themselves right there on their knees to the presence of God, praying about it, believing that something can change. Even, as you can read the text here, it says that Peter is out. He's walking about. What are they still doing? They're still praying. They don't even know he's been released yet. Because until they see him face to face, until they know he's out, they're going to be praying until they know. Don't stop praying until God speaks to it. Don't stop praying until God brings the miracle. Don't stop praying until God brings the result. Don't stop praying until God shows up. But too many times, it isn't that we haven't prayed about it. It's that we're not praying about it. You know, I look at James, his story at the beginning of this. I look at Peter. I look at us. And I'm trying to put it all together and make sense of it. I'll be honest. And all that I can come up with for you right now is that eventually, we will all die. At some point, one way or another, we're going to die. The death of James, it was shocking and it was heartbreaking to the church, to his little bro. But one thing I need you to understand about God is even in the midst of a heartbreak and hardship such as that, it was still within the sovereignty of God. Whoa. Big word. What does sovereignty mean? You know what it means? It means that no matter what happens, God has never been, never will be kicked off his throne. It means that he is never out of control. It means that nothing is out of the ruling and reigning of his hand. It also simultaneously means, though, that God can do, will do, or will allow whatever pleases him. See, he's not a people pleaser either. He's a God pleaser. Whoa. Pastor Dave, are you telling me that it it pleased God that James was killed? No, I'm saying, I'm saying that God lives in a state always of doing what pleases him. Because if he lives and ever longs to please you, as you found out many times when you please you, it destroys you. But, watch this. But if he will always be in a state of pleasing himself... Only at that point then can he bring everything together for the good of those that loves him. He can bring death, destruction, any disaster of this world, and he can bring hope from it. He can bring peace from it. Why? Because he never got caught in a state of living to please the world, living to please you. Love you, yes serve you, yes. I think, I think he sent the ultimate servant, his son, Jesus. But please you, never. No. See, James's death was really this massive setup here to bring God glory. But Peter wasn't yet. So do you know what he needed the church to do? He needed the church to start praying. See, he had a plan, but if the church never started praying, the plan can't come forth the way he's setting it up. So he begins to stir in the hearts of people to start praying. Something that we are lacking today in this generation, something that we're lacking in the church of America today, a praying church. Yeah, we throw prayer gatherings, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about a consistent praying people. I was thinking about this thought, though. I pray so much better when I'm with people. 
it just gets me fired up. When I start seeing people go after it, I, I turn into like, it's like Rocky Eight or whatever the next movie that's going to come out. I just like, I start just getting hype over it. I get, uh, I, I actually, people don't know how to read me a lot of times because I won't show any emotion because in my mind, it's just firing all cylinders. And I will literally, like the whole room will just be like dancing and jumping and going. I'm just like, But I'm worshiping like you ain't, like you can't possibly. No, I'm not saying I don't dance. I do all that. But when I get around people, it just, it starts firing something in me. I start praying. I was thinking about this. I wonder if their prayer life was so much better because they spent all of their time together. And we've become such a divided church in this modern day age that everybody's about doing their own thing off all over the place. But they literally would live together, eat together, bring all their money together, serve together, evangelize together, pray together, do life together. And I wonder if that's why their prayer life was so incredible. What you need to realize is that when a Christian is in danger, Christians need to get dangerous. And too many times we hear about these stories of whatever it is, somebody around the world or somebody right here in the United States of America, whatever it is, somebody in trouble, somebody in danger, and we're like, oh, man, that really stinks. Rather than getting on our knees before God and getting dangerous in the presence of God and going to prayer and digging in, because at this point, Peter's in prison, he's getting prepared to be beheaded at this point, yet finally he's recognized, okay, just like James, this is what could happen to me, but prayer makes a way. When there appears to be no way, when there appears to be no possibility of him getting out, he didn't have it dreamed up. He's sitting here in this prison, and the only thing that he knows is I've given everything for Jesus. I did it right. I'm okay with being here right now because I did not at all waver in following him. That's the only thing I know. God, whatever you want for me next, whatever you have for me, I know what just happened with James. If that's what you have for me, that's what you have for me. But see, God had a, a bigger plan because what he was wanting to do is he was wanting to begin to stir up the church. And so that's what's so difficult for us to see a lot of times what God's plan is and how he's working because he's stirring things in ways we can't see. And he wanted to stir up a praying church where an angel would literally show up. You can't make this stuff up. Peter would have never thought of it. And walk him out to the point the Bible says he thinks it's a vision. And walk him all the way out past all of these guards. And he even gets past them all. In verse 11, he gets to that and he goes, I didn't even know this was real and this was even happening. But the church was praying. They don't even know he's out yet. Look at you get to verse 13. Peter comes and he knocks at the outer entrance in the night. And a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And look how it says this. When she recognized Peter's voice, it's too dark. She can't even see his face. Now listen, in the middle of the night, I ain't letting anybody in. I don't care whether their voice sounds familiar or not. Even with their face, AI, now these days, I don't even know if I trust letting them in. Like, you better got a key to this place. She hears his voice, and she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Peter comes knock on the door. She goes, that's Peter. That's Peter. She leaves the brother out there. <laughs> Pistol Pete in the middle of the street. An escaped fugitive from the Roman 5-0. He, she leaves him out there in the street. He freaking out now. And he's out there. So what does he do? He knocks again. She's like, Peter at the door. And they're all like, no, what did they say? You out of your mind. You crazy, girl. He's in prison last time we checked. When she kept on in, in, insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Like, it must be somebody representing him somehow. But Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. Why did Peter keep knocking? See, when you follow Jesus, 
I imagine for them, as a follower of Jesus, I'm trying to live by what I read in the Bible, but can you imagine for them, they were trying to remember every single thing that he said and just do what he said to do. And he was like, okay, I remember that one time he was talking. We would know now it's Matthew 7. He's like, one time he's talking, ask, it will be given to you, seek, and you'll find, knock, and the door will be opened. So he's like, I'm just going to keep knocking. Because at some point, I know they're leaving me out here right now, but at some point, knock and the door will be open, Jesus said. So he just keeps knocking. Knock, knock, knocking on Mary's door. You realize, though, this picture of Peter knocking, this is a picture of prayer, right? Like, that's why Luke gives us this detail so clearly, because Peter was persistently knocking, 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 knocking. That's why Jesus said, knock, and the door will be opened. Peter keeps knocking, keeps knocking on the door, because at some point he knows somebody has to open the door if I keep knocking. This is a picture of prayer. But you notice he comes to the door, he knocks, Rhoda hears his voice. She's like, listen, Pete's here. And they're like, you crazy, girl. He ain't here. It's interesting that believers were unbelieving. What really throws me off here is that they were praying that Peter would be released, and then when he was released, they didn't believe it. See, because God is not just looking for what we see here, a church that's persistent in prayers. He wants a church that is both persistent and expectant in our prayers. He wants a church, this is what we're called to, to pray in such a way that we're ready for Pete to walk in the door at any point. That what we pray for is going to happen. We are going to expect the unexpected. He's looking for a church that is so in the midst of his presence that they're ready for him to walk into the room. He's looking for a church that's so zoned into him, but not so zoned out from the rest of the world. And that is the problem with a lot of believers today. You either have some that are so into themselves that they never are into God enough, or you have some that they're so into God that they can't notice the hurting person, the neighbor that needs Jesus, somebody that's in need of, they're getting all this power inside of them in prayer, and it's like pumping the super soaker up and never pulling the trigger. All the pressure, all the power, you never let, let it go. He's looking for a church that is both persistent and knows how to get on their face and be in the midst of his presence and get filled with the power. But they're also expecting at any point God's going to send me somebody that needs the love of Jesus. Peter is going to show up to this place any moment, y'all. Let's keep praying. Because just like the Anglican church candle, they're like, this place is lit. Let's keep praying. Until this flame goes out, we're going to keep praying. And if y'all were wondering, did I just use lit and is that out? I, I don't care because I ain't here to please you. God still likes the word lit, and I'll say it whenever I want. <laughs> just joking. I actually never say that. I just did it to be dumb. God's looking for a praying church. God's looking for people to pray like Peter would knock. He's looking for people to lean into his voice and his word that at any point, exactly what we're praying for, it's about to walk through the door. See, verse 17, Peter comes up to the door, and Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. He's like, uh, okay, I got to take off. I got to lay low. I, I got to get off the street a little bit here. Now, obviously, this is, if you didn't put this together. He says, tell James. This ain't the same James that was just killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church. But he's like, I got to lay low. I need Herod to forget about this for a sec because I got some more work to do. We don't see James, uh, Peter in the book of Acts show up again for three chapters. You can find him in some other books of the Bible, Galatians, some things happening, but he kind of lays low here in the book of Acts till so chapter 15. But it says in chapter 12, verse 18, now the night's passed. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers 
as to what had become of Peter. After Herod, he found out what happened, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. They couldn't find Peter anywhere. He cross-examined the guards, and then what did he do? He ordered that they be executed. Oh, I love the Bible. It is so awesome. You want to know why? You want to know the Bible is so awesome? Because I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in pleasing God. And I have no problem that God is going to please himself. It's going to be about him. I have no problem with that. Because every time I make it about me, I screw it up. And I love a verse like this because you know what it shows? It shows that God always plans better than man. Always. Didn't we just read this? That Peter had a plan to execute, I'm sorry, Herod had a plan to execute Peter, but it backfired. So he doesn't actually ever get to execute Peter. He actually doesn't go down the row and start executing all the apostles like he thought back to back to back like he wanted to. He ends up ex executing his guards. Because in the end, you know what? Peter, uh, Herod, he just wanted to execute somebody. You ever get around somebody, they just want to see the world burn. They just want somebody to die. They want somebody to pay. They want somebody to be responsible for it. Rather than taking ownership for themselves, rather than humbling themselves, rather than stop trying to please themselves and please everybody else, but really turn themselves and say, you know what? I'm going to take responsibility and God will make my life about pleasing you now. See, somebody was going to die. But I love in the sovereignty of God because he doesn't aim to please us. It's going to be about him that when man makes plans, God always has something better in store. Peter was going to be set free. There was going to be something better in store for this entire story. But see, this period in history, Herod, along with others in the Sanhedrin and the, and the, the Jews of that time, they had a target on the church. They had a target on the apostles. Really what their objective was, was to try to get the church to a point that it was broken down and they could be like, look, James, what are you going to be without James now? Peter, what are you going to be without Peter now? But they didn't realize that this thing was not built on a man. This thing was built on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So where they kept thinking they could imprison people, they could, they could try to torture people, or they could try to kill people, they didn't realize that what they were doing was stirring up a hornet's nest. They were getting the people more passionate about prayer. They were getting them set on fire to start praying. They were stirring them up, getting them to a point that literally they'd be getting on their knees and things would be changing outside in the streets. They didn't have to go on the street for change to happen. They had to get on their knees for it to happen. And Herod thought that he could try to dismantle the church. San, the Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders, thought that they could mess up the plan if they would just go after a couple of these men. But this was never and has never been built on men. It's been built on Jesus. But can I tell you, God uses us. God will even use us in ways that we can't comprehend it and we feel like it hurts and we can't understand his plan in it. We can't understand the trials we go through, the hardships we go through, such as James. Let's go back. Let's struggle together for that a little bit. Why would James be killed but Peter is set free? Because that's where a lot of us struggle. Why would God allow one thing to happen and why would he not, why would he change it over here? Why would God save this but not save this? It doesn't make sense to me. We read these first two verses here. The execution of James, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And we read that and we're like, well, that sucks. But what makes it harder is rather many times than celebrating that Peter was set free, we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Why did James have to die and Peter got set free? You ever done this in your life? Why did it work out this way for them, but it worked out differently for this person? Why did this person get healed in this circumstance? This disease didn't take their life, but it took this person's life. I don't get it. 
And we get so caught up in these little details because they hurt and they're human and they're real and God gets it and he gave us this emotion and he wants to walk through us with it. But we have to understand that we are this close and we have to zoom out and see that he sees a bigger picture and he has a bigger plan. So I'm not God and this ain't gonna be perfect, but I'm gonna try to give you a little bit of insight to help this make sense that God is always doing something bigger. I'm not going to go case in point. I'm not going to go, here's absolute evidence. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to show you that God is working when you don't realize it. I think one of the pieces that we could take in here that is helpful is that this did stir up the church to pray. This just woke up. Uh, the, the phrase would be, if the church would rise up, it would wake up a sleeping giant. That's the thing that's always been said. If like the church would all start praying, if the church would start giving, if the church would start serving, if the church would start telling people about Jesus, I'll tell you, the world would flip upside down completely. We would, like, we would together just turn it around that quick. But see, there's not enough people that are ready, willing to do this. This is why Jesus said, even the elect, what does that mean? Even the ones that you would have never imagined they could turn from God, even they might not make it to the end. That can mean pastors, that can mean leaders, that can mean some of your parents that are like, man, they, I can just tell you they loved you. So this is why we have to stay humble and focused. This is why we have to make Jesus the number one thing because anybody can fall short at any point. We've fallen short of the glory of God and been forgiven. That doesn't mean that we still can't fall short. So number one, it stirred the church up. The second thing, though, as you look into history, there's a, a theologian, philosopher, a Christian writer in the second century by the name of Clement of Alexandria. And what this, what this person recorded was in this historical account when James was killed is that they recorded the trial of James. What had happened at this moment? And as James stands up and he doesn't go, you know, I'm going to say anything I can to get out of this. He declares Jesus Christ to be Lord of his life. He declares Jesus still to be the center and the focus. He declares that he's the son of God. He declares that he's the Messiah. He declares, Herod, I don't care what you think. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He doesn't back off at all. But see, in this moment, it wasn't just Herod that was hearing all this. You know who else was listening in this moment? James's accuser that got him here in the first place was listening. The man that had accused James and brought him to this point of being condemned unto death is sitting there as James. History writes itself. As you go way back into church history, it shows us that there's so many details that are outside of even what the Bible tells us because they could only record so many things. And so historians and writers and people would come together and they would continue to tell the story back at the origin of the church. And this man is here and he's hearing James tell every account of who Jesus is. You know what happened? As James is standing there on his trial, not trying to get out of it, not trying to make excuses, not trying to find a way. Because some people can try to argue, well, maybe if he lied or something, he could win more people for Jesus and he could get out so he could have more time so more people can come to Jesus. God is not interested in dishonesty because that is people pleasing. You're aiming to please yourself. Don't lie. Don't lie to yourself. We at all times, even if the trial of our life or death, we make Jesus Lord in all that we say and do. Because we never know who's in the room watching. So as history tells the story, as Clement recorded this, this man was so moved by James's testimony that he on the spot declares Jesus to be Lord of his life. And he comes into the faith right there. Because of that, you know what happened? Because he now declared that he is a Christian in the faith. They didn't have the title till Acts 13 at Antioch, but a believer, a follower of the way. James, now also with this man, were taken off together now at the same time to their execution. Look at how quick this got flipped. This man lying, falsely accusing, 
getting James to this point, he now declares Jesus to be Lord, and he's taken now with James to be executed with him. Clement, he writes this. He says, on the way, he, this man, asked James for forgiveness. James looked at him for a moment and said, peace be to you, and kissed him. In that culture, they'd kiss on the cheek. So both were beheaded at the same time. You never know who's in the room. You never know who's watching. You never know who's listening. And what I've found is even though in my life I've served Jesus for a very long time, over 30 years, there are seasons where even though I still would claim him to be God, I would struggle to have the energy to keep it up because my prayer life wasn't giving me the power that I needed to like really live it out. So at times, because I wasn't praying, because I wasn't really getting with God and the scriptures and getting fueled up the way I needed to, it became so taxing to try to live it out in front of people. And so I would even start to question myself, is this real? Like, like I, I know it's real, I know it's real, but like, you know what I mean? It's like you, you kind of start doubting and stuff because you're not staying energized and fueled up like you need to to live out Jesus in a world that's gonna hate you for it. But what I've realized is this combination of two things we can learn from Acts 12. A praying people, a praying church that brings that power, that energy that we need to live out our salvation, number one. Then comes the point when we stand firm in the faith and we declare who Jesus is, Lord and Savior of our soul, that he's forgiven our sin, that he paid the highest price, that he is who he says that he is, and he will come back for us and do exactly what he said. See, he wants us to be his church, his bride that's ready for his return. When we speak like that, when we exemplify that in front of people, you never know who's in the room. And in an instant, your accuser can be the one that will stand with you for Jesus. Your enemy will become your friend in an instant. Because you chose to be unwavering in your faith. God is not looking for people that look the part in front of other Christians. He's looking for people that look the part in front of unbelievers. He's looking for those that will look the part and stand firm in front of those that are accusatory and those that lie against you and those that steal and cheat. And the only way that you can do that is if you have a life that's grounded in a time of prayer with him because you will never be powerful enough if you're not fueled up. We have to eat food. We have to drink water. And most of the time for me, some sort of Celsius or rowdy or bubble or something to keep going every day, that is prayer. It's every day I have to be with Jesus. So if you've been wondering what are we going to do tonight, we're not going to worship and sing. We're going to turn this place into a house of prayer for a little bit. Because when Jesus came back and they were selling all these animals and they were making money off the things of God, he was a crazy, crazy man. He came in with a whip and he's whipping people and he's driving them out. And he says, my father's house will not be a den of robbers. He says, my father's house is a house of prayer. And we, we pray for not, tonight for two reasons. We pray because I believe that when the saints pray together, it stirs the, the place up. But we also pray because some of you, it's a good atmosphere for you to learn that this is not just something we do here, but it's something you can take with you and you can do with God at all times, anytime. But tonight, I want to give somebody in the room that you've been off to the side watching James's testimony and listening. And you were the accuser. And you're the one that right now needs forgiveness. And you're the one that needs to confess Jesus to be Lord of your life because you're not living for him. You're Lord of your life. You aim to please yourself. 
you aim to please anybody, everybody but God. I want to give you an opportunity tonight to humble yourself, to remind yourself you're not as cool as you think you are. You're not as great as you think you are. You can't do everything alone like you thought you could. You're not as smart as you think you are. You need Jesus. So would you bow your heads, close your eyes in the room tonight. And I just want to give you an opportunity as we respect this moment together to just not only tell yourself, admit it to yourself, but would you confess it to God that you need him tonight? If that's you, I figure if James can stand up on trial unto death, you can stand up tonight to claim Jesus as Lord. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want you to get out of your seat. I want you to stand up on your feet. And I want you to come and stand here with me right here. And as soon as you come here, we have people that are going to begin to just pray for you and minister to you to strengthen you and encourage you so you can do this walk with God. But if that's you, I want you to stand right now and come join me right here. And when you do that, you're confessing Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. You're confessing that you've sinned, that you've fallen short, and that you're in need of him. So I'm going to give you a quick little count, because I know there's people in the room that you want to do it, but you're a little nervous. So one, remember it's not all about you. Two, Jesus loves you, and he died for you. Three, come on, somebody get off their feet and come join me right now to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. Thank you, brother. You guys can turn me right here. Just turn right here. Turn, you can turn around, and we're just going to start ministering. Pastor Steve, we're going to minister to you guys. there's anybody else join us we're just going to pray we're going to minister to these people right now father thank you so much for what you're doing in every heart thank you that you're turning us lord towards you thank you that you're changing our hearts thank you that father you're filling them fill them with your holy spirit right now we love you jesus thank you jesus god i not only pray over these amazing people that made you Lord and Savior of their life tonight, but I pray over people in the room that, Lord, are leaning into this word, and I don't know what peace they're taking away, but they're taking a peace that they want to lean into tonight. I pray that you would stir it in them. Stir the dust, Holy Spirit. Stir the dust. Begin to change hearts. Begin to transform minds. Begin to do a work in every single person here tonight. We confess you as Lord. We confess that we're in need of you. We humble ourselves. We give you our life tonight. We love you, Jesus. Amen.